We take as our scripture reading this morning, Matthew, the first chapter beginning at verse 18 through the second chapter, verse 12. As you might expect, our Christmas sermon comes from the passage of Scripture that details in one of the two Gospels that spends time dwelling on this, the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, beginning our reading at verse 18. Hear this as the Word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But when he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For it is he that shall save his people from their sins. Now all this has come to pass, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth a son and he called his name Jesus. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he that is born, the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and are come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written through the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, land of Judah, art in no wise least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come forth a governor who shall be shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod privately called the Magi and learned of them exactly what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search out exactly concerning the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I also may come and worship him. And they, having heard the king, went their way, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And they came into the house and saw the young child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him, and opening their treasures, they offered unto him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And thus far the reading of God's Word. 
I suppose one of the most despised uh, exercises that you have ever gone through in school, certainly one of the most despised that I've ever endured in going to school was something along these lines. Write an essay entitled, What George Washington's Birthday Means to Me, or What July 4th Means to Me, or What Thanksgiving Means to Me. Perhaps it's a symptom of our times that when we write essays, they have to be what something means to me. There's this great existential thrust of our, um, of our own day where anything that has meaning must have subjective meaning for me because I, have, I am at the center of the universe, certainly at the center of my experience of the universe, and so anything that has meaning must have meaning for me or perhaps it doesn't even exist. Well, apart from the philosophical and cultural implications of it, the fact is we've all had to write such essays. And I'm sorry to tell you, but that's what you're going to get this morning. What I would like to tell you is what Christmas means to me. It sounds so dry and so um, threadbare, but I trust that uh, in going through a few of the things I'm going to tell you, you'll find something of interest. What does Christmas mean to me? Well, we can begin with the word, Christmas, the Mass of Christ. And all of a sudden, our Protestant sensitivities arise and we say, now wait a minute, we don't celebrate the Mass in our church, we have reformed from the Roman Catholic communion, we no longer consider them part of the true church of Jesus Christ, and therefore we don't have a Mass. But I doubt very seriously that many of you in this room, except uh, those who might have had Roman Catholic upbringing, many of you have ever gone to a Mass, the Mass of Christ, and yet you've celebrated Christmas all your lives. I don't want to get very heavy into philosophy today, even though I started out talking about existentialism, but I want to suggest that if you do a serious study of the doctrine of meaning and significance, that you'll find out that although the etymology of the word Christmas has a Roman Catholic flavor about it because of the Mass of Christ, the meaning of Christmas has nothing to do with that, unless for you in particular that is uh, somehow central and essential to the celebration of that day. I think for most of us who are not Roman Catholic, and perhaps even for most Roman Catholics, the meaning of Christmas is to be found elsewhere. And I want to suggest that Christmas means three different things. First of all, Christmas is a religious celebration of the Nativity. For all of the other problems we're going to have with the cultural um, secularization of this holiday, Christmas historically and continues to be in some sense, a celebration of the nativity. People remember that it was at this time, well, it's at this time that the church remembers and all the culture with it, that Christ was born. We'll come back to that. Christmas secondly means to people today, and means to me also, a time of merriment, a time of festiveness, a time of vacation and holiday. Not holy day in the traditional sense, perhaps, but nevertheless, holiday vacation and a time for relaxation, the enjoyment of uh, the presence of friends, relatives, uh, neighbors, what have you, and rejoicing of some sort. And on the subject of rejoicing, um, I suppose I'm not a universal expert. I do know how to rejoice myself. I know how to relax. I know what makes me happy. I know what I like to do in my free time and I like to do on my vacations, but I don't know what you like to do what sorts of things make you happy or in what ways you like to be festive and be merry. 
Uh, some of the things I do may strike you as uh, terribly um, highbrow. Uh, some of the things you like to do may uh, strike others as terribly silly. I mean, it's all very different for everybody as to how to make merry. And so I have nothing further to say on that subject this morning either. Being merry at Christmas time. But I suppose that is the meaning of Christmas for many of us. And even if we were not to have a Christmas sermon or a caroling party or any remembrance in our family of the birth of Jesus Christ, Christmas would still be a time of merriment. But we would wonder why it's called Christmas. Nevertheless, at this time of year, we would make merry. Now, Christmas means a third thing to most people, and I think it's here where we get all of the sympathies that there might be for the Scrooges of this world. Christmas means also something in terms of the commercial establishments of our land. Now, it doesn't mean something for these merchants of our land in a vacuum. The merchants of our land didn't come to enjoy and to promote Christmas the way they do, just out of the blue. You see, merchants realize that because, one, religious people see the celebration of the Nativity as a time of celebration, and that people in general, whether they are religious or not, like to make merry and to give gifts, merchants, you see, pick up on that, and then they, well, some would say promote, others would say exploit those natural feelings we have for this season of the year, for one reason or another, religious or just general rejoicing because of the holiday that is given to us. Now, what should we make of these merchants who do this terrible sort of thing? I suppose you've heard so many you know, harangues, uh, so many cynical remarks about them. You don't need to come this morning in, a, in the context of our worship service to hear me harangue about them. I could certainly harangue. Um, it strikes me as uh, not humorous anymore, but in, in a pathetic way sad that um, merchants produce uh, items to be purchased that no person would ever buy for themselves. And yet they expect us to buy such things for others. Because, after all, we are under some kind of a social or psychological uh, guilt trip, some kind of an obligation to give gifts to people that we don't even particularly care about, even if they happen to be blood-related. The merchants of our land have exploited that, to be sure. I think we have been very willing to be exploited. I wouldn't by any means say that they have somehow drummed up this interest in Christmas and uh, you know, somehow forced us to become addicted you know, to, the, to the merriment that they promote. A, a cheap, tinsel merriment to be sure, but you see, there's something in us that wants that to happen. And although we complain that Christmas you know, um, was celebrated in the stores and was being promoted in the stores even before Halloween this year, uh, the fact of the matter is we do long for Christmas, don't we? Isn't there that, if nothing else, little child in all of us but wants to see this time of the year come around. Now, psychologists might tell you that that's because children learned to go at least for 12 years of their life until they became mature teenagers and uh, didn't see it in this light, but they learned for at least 12 years to expect this cycle of the year to come around when they got a lot of gifts. And people were generally happy. And even family members who despised and hated one another could get together for a few hours on one day of the year and not discuss their problems. Is that so terrible for children to look forward to a time like that when there is, even if it's an artificial, nevertheless, a peace on earth? When there are gifts between men? I don't think it's just children that do that. I think there's something 
much deeper about this. And that what the merchants are exploiting, and yes, it may be commercial exploitation, but there's something very deeply psychological about the wanting of that kind of a time, perhaps that kind of an age, that kind of a world to come about. And so as we think about what does Christmas mean to me this morning, I'm going to go back and focus on Christmas as a religious celebration, the birth of Jesus Christ, as I see in it the fulfillment of the deepest needs of men and women. A very um, tragic article appeared in the <clears throat> register last week on the 15th entitled uh, Death Illness came to couple waiting for cosmic visitors. And I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I want to read this article for you this morning. And I hope you'll feel not just the pathetic stupidity of people who believe these sorts of things, but just think what it means in terms of the life significance that somebody would lose their lives for this. Uh, the story comes from Grand Marias, <coughs> Minnesota. From October 5th to November 15th, Gerald Flatch and Laverne Landis sat in the bucket seats of his 1979 Chevrolet Monza and waited deep in the northern Minnesota wilderness for visitors from outer space. The autumn leaves, already faded past their prime, fell from the trees. Crisp days gave way to blowing snow and temperatures that somewhat dropped to 10 degrees below zero. The visitors never came. The couple might have waited longer. Flatch later said his companion insisted Spirits had reassured her a UFO would arrive. But after weeks without food and days without water, Landis, 50, perished of starvation, dehydration, and hypothermia. Flatch stumbled and crawled the quarter mile to the main road and was found by a passing construction contractor. And he says later, She was in contact with them, the spirits, just about every night he told Deputy Frank Redfield of the Cook County Sheriff's Office after his rescue. They kept telling us they would be picking us up. It never happened. Every time, it never happened. What drove them to abandon their families and roam through the northern plains for six months, searching for unidentified flying objects, then maintain a six-week vigil without food, heat, or adequate clothing? Well, the story goes on to speculate as to what might have led these people into this situation. Uh, I won't read any further. Let's stop with that question. What led them to do that sort of thing? To hope that the spirits were telling them the truth, that cosmic visitors were going to come and rescue them. What would lead them? Have you ever fasted for a day? Or two? Or three? Have you ever gone six weeks without food? What would lead them to endure the pain of six weeks without food and apparently many days without water after the uh, pond uh, which they were near froze over? To endure that kind of pain, do you know what it is like to have your toes get just a little too cold as the temperature drops here in Southern California? Well, for these people, you see their toes not only got cold, their whole bodies got cold, extremely cold. We're sitting in a car, you see, that doesn't have a heater running all the time in degrees as low as 10 below zero. I want to maintain there isn't something... I mean, there's more to the story than pathetic stupidity, that they would believe in UFOs. 
There's something very sacrificial about these people, very dedicated about these people. There's a great longing in these people for something which was obviously missing in their lives. And I'm not going to be some drugstore psychologist who can dispense in five seconds the answer to that problem. I don't know. I know in the deepest sense that the answer is God, but I don't know specifically what it was in their lives that made them feel incomplete, inadequate, unsatisfied. That made them feel that they were alone and they needed help. And that that help could not be provided by anything on earth, any power available to them in the ordinary means of human communication and interaction, but had to be a power that came from outside this universe. I don't know what gave them the belief that that power would be a friendly one, or that it was speaking to them. But you know, when you describe it in those words, all of a sudden it begins to sound very much like us, doesn't it? Those of us who know that there is no power and no satisfaction that earth can offer and that human society can afford that will give us true, genuine, a feeling of belonging, a feeling of worth, dignity, value, that we have a goal, and that this universe is friendly to us. And so since this world cannot provide that, as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Because we have hearts that long for something that transcends human experience and the natural world, we too expect visitors from outer space, to put it in strange language, but nevertheless roughly synonymous language to what we really as Christians believe. That God, the friendly creator of this universe, visited us. He came to get us. He came to rescue us. He came to make our lives different and better, to save our lives, as we say it in the Christian ghetto, with our language and our vocabulary. This couple, the one who died and the one who was very ill and rescued, this couple, I think, symbolizes something which is universal, not something that's just a symptom of our times, a symptom of our culture but something which is true of all men in all cultures and all times, and that's that there is a longing in the human heart. There are also fears in the human heart. Psychologists tell us that fears and hopes impel us and draw us. Our hopes draw us into things, a hope for a better world, perhaps, a hope for equality among men, a hope for peace, maybe in our families, a hope for a sense of relief and satisfaction inside ourselves. Hope and desire maybe for um, sensual gratification. The hope and desire for a more prosperous life, more money with which to live. But then there are also fears that don't draw us, but rather impel us, push us, if you will. Pushed by fears and drawn by hopes. And we all know what it is to be pushed by fear. Fear of rejection, Fear of physical pain or hurt. Fear of injustice, of things not going the way they ought to. A fear of the unknown, a fear of death, a fear of final judgment. Well, the list could go on and on. We'd have a virtual psychology lesson if I were to tell you this morning of all of the hopes and all of the fears of mankind that have driven people and have given them uh, some kind of hope that have drawn them, um, even as this couple that died in the wilderness of Minnesota 
had hopes and fears waiting for cosmic visitors to rescue them. What does Christmas mean to me? Christmas means to me that our hopes can be satisfied and our fears can be relieved. Every single one of them. By this time you may be wondering, well, but preacher, why do you tell us what Christmas means to you? In the end, I mean, any one of you could stand up here and do as much. You could say, what does Christmas mean to me? And then we could all take our turns. We could all, just like in the grammar school exercise, write our own little essays on what Christmas means to me. I think in the end, the more important thing is what does Christmas mean to the writers of Scripture? That is the true meaning of Christmas. And it gives me a, a sense of satisfaction to know that what Christmas means to me is as I see it, what Christmas meant to Matthew. There are a lot of things in Matthew that we could preach on this morning, but I want to focus on two in particular. The first is the universal and historical significance of Christmas for Matthew. And we can see that in two particular portions of our Bible reading this morning. If you look at chapter 1, verse 22. Matthew has told us the story of Joseph being distressed that this girl to whom he is engaged is pregnant. He has not had sexual relations with her. He wants to, out of uh, sympathy for her, put her away privately, divorce her privately. <coughs> but an angel appears to him and tells him what is really going on and the significance of this and directs Joseph to name the child Jesus, Yahshua. Joshua in the Old Testament. The Lord is salvation. Name him Savior. And in verse 22, Matthew says, Now all this is come to pass, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. That's very important. What Matthew is saying, he's establishing a pattern at the beginning of his gospel, by the way, of doing this. But what he is saying here is that the Old Testament was looking forward to this. That the prophets of old anticipated this very event. Specifically, he thinks of Isaiah 7, verse 14, where Ahaz has been told by the Lord to ask for a sign of the truth of Isaiah's prophecy to Ahaz. Ahaz says, oh no, I won't ask anything. Uh, that isn't like me, holy man that I am. Of course, it was utter hypocrisy. Uh, God says, well, Ahaz, since you won't ask for a sign, God will give you a sign. And this is the sign. A young woman, uh, which we can get into all the debate about this, but there's no question that in the context of Isaiah's prophecy, that must be a virgin young woman, or else there's no sign involved, there's no miracle. I mean, the fact that a woman has a child is no big deal, happens every day. But rather, a virgin will have a child. And when this virgin has a child, you'll know to call it Emmanuel. That's such a beautiful name in Hebrew, if you understand the meaning of the Hebrew parts of the name, Emmanuel, God with us. It's a beautiful name that I, I think we sometimes overlook that because throughout our um, history, there have been people who've been named Emmanuel. I've never understood that. And you may know people who are named Emmanuel, and I don't want to step on any toes, but I just, I, it's just hard for me to understand how any parent who knows anything of the Bible 
could dare name any one of their children Emmanuel. Only one child deserves that name. The one that is God with us. The God-man himself. But now look, Matthew writes this. And he says the significance of what's going on here is that this is what the prophets were looking forward to. All of those who wrote in the Old Testament, all of the people of the Old Testament, God's chosen people, the Jews, look forward to the time God would come and save them. I couldn't begin to number the passages that speak in the Old Testament of God being called the Savior or the promise, God will come or God will save you. He will redeem His people. He will take care of them, rescue them from every distress. And the epitome of that is going to be when God personally arrives. There are numerous prophecies to that effect. I'm sure you've heard enough lessons. I don't need to rehearse this for you. The many prophecies of the coming of Jesus Christ. Well, they begin all the way back in the garden. Back where we see the most primal nature of man and needs of man. His fears and his hopes as we see them in the garden of Eden. As he has rebelled against God, it's brought shame between the man and his wife. It's going to bring discourse, I mean, it's going to bring uh, distress and, and warfare into the world as the sons who are born to Adam and Eve fall into fighting. It brings alienation from God, fear, psychological distress. All of the uh, maladies of the human race are seen right there. And God comes and he says, that one will be born who will crush the head of the tempter. Someone will come. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ the Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, that was the song that was sung in the Garden of Eden. Not that Jesus was born that day, obviously, historically, but it was the promise that one would be born who would do away with this evil influence of Satan and rescue us from the evil results of the rebellion he's introduced. And ever since the Garden of Eden, every revelation God has given is in one way or another laid in another stroke in the developing picture, another stroke and another stroke, painting for us in a progressive way the truth that God himself would come to be with his people. Remember Adam walked and he talked with God in the Garden of Eden but when he sinned, he ran from the voice of God. See, that's the most elementary thing about man. That although he wishes to have fellowship with God, he fears it now because of judgment. And because he fears the face of God, he cannot get along with his fellow men, cannot get along with himself, cannot fulfill the task and make this world the paradise it was meant to be. Now there are thorns and thistles, there is scarcity, there's economic oppression, there's problem in the homes, there's problem between nations, and on and on the list could go because we're alienated from God. And so God gives promise to Abraham that he will be a God to Abraham and to his seed after him. He will dwell with Abraham and Abraham's people and give them a land, give them a kingdom. And as God's people are in slavery in Egypt, and are told to leave, to defy the Pharaoh, who, by the way, claimed to be a God-man, claimed to be the bridge between heaven and earth. God's people are promised that as they leave, God will go with them. He will accompany them in their wilderness trip. 
and he will take them to a promised land. And as he is with them, he gives them a pattern for camping, where the tabernacle is in the midst of the camp, and in the midst of the tabernacle is the holiest place, and there in the holiest place is the Shekinah glory of God himself as he dwells in the midst of his people. And God brings the people into the land and dwells with them in the land and scatters their enemies. But he judges them in the land as they rebel as well. And finally the day comes when they will be taken into captivity for their idolatry and for their departure from the laws of God. And even then, God says, I will be a tabernacle to you. I will go with you into Babylon. I will be with you. And the promise is given in Isaiah as well as in many of the other prophets, that God himself will yet come personally to dwell with his people. You see what Matthew's getting at? He says, what's taking place here is that all of the hopes of the Old Testament, the relief of all the fears of people of old, is coming now to be taken care of. God has actually come. The Savior is here. God with us. Matthew doesn't just leave it at that. That's the first indication. When he says all the history of the Old Testament, I think, that hope for God being with his people has now come to fulfillment. Matthew also tells us in chapter 2 of the universal significance of this event. In Matthew chapter 2, we read that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Magi came from the east. You may have wise men in your translations. Perhaps you should have astrologers or magicians of some sort. Often enough, people have thought of these as kings, and, and they might have been, although there's no biblical evidence to hold that. Tertullian in the early part of the third century maintained that they were kings, but we don't know why. We don't know how many there were also. Uh, the three comes from the fact that there were three types of gifts mentioned but there may have been more gifts, and there may have been one, or well, it says it's plural, so there would have been two that offered three gifts. There may have been 20 who offered three gifts. We don't really know. What we do know is that they're magi. What does that mean? Herodotus, if I were giving a lecture, I'd just use that name and go on, but I dare not do that now, right? Who is Herodotus? An early Greek historian. In fact, uh, one of the most important of the early historians setting a pattern for the writing of history in that day. Herodotus said, speaking of, not of the Magi of our story, but of the Magi in general, that they were originally a Median tribe, a tribe of the Medes. Who are the Medes then, you say? Well, you remember the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians of the Old Testament? The Medes and the Persians formed a particular kingdom. The Medes tried to overthrow the Persians. Persians are Iranians, by the way, if you want to bring that up, uh, contemporary significance. That's why I couldn't preach this sermon a couple of years ago. It would have been a little more difficult. But nevertheless, the Medes were, along with the Persians, a political force that once ruled uh, the Oriental world. After the Medes could not overthrow the Persians in their political coup, this particular tribe of the Medes became priests. And later on in Persian culture, we read that no sacrifice could be made without the presence of a magus, or a magus, one of those who um, formed this Median tribe. They um, were used as teachers and instructors of the Persian kings and other members of the royal home. They were renowned for their holiness and their wisdom. 
They became skilled in speculative philosophy, in medical arts, and astrology in particular. And later, unfortunately, they become little more than sorcerers or fortune tellers, charlatan magicians. In fact, you'll read of two other magi in the New Testament if you're interested. In Acts 8, you'll read of Simon, who was a sorcerer, a magus, and uh, Elimus in Acts 13, who was also a sorcerer. Now, although one early church father says that the Magi came from Babylon, most of the others, Clement of Alexandria and others, say that they came from Persia, which is what you'd expect given this name. And in fact, the earliest uh, forms of Christian art show them dressed in Persian robes. So anyway, the Magi, to make this very uh, uh, short now, were Persians, astrologers, wise men from the East. Uh, the king of Armenia... Herodotus visited Nero at Rome, we read about in the biography of Nero, and brought with him his Magi. And Seneca, who was an early Stoic philosopher about the time of Paul, speaks of Magi in Athens making sacrifice to the memory of Plato. So Magi are um, well known in this day and age. What Matthew is saying is that Israel's long-awaited king is going to be acknowledged even in infancy by representatives of the non-Jewish world, the men who seek wisdom, who know the significance of the natural world, men who are outside the Jewish fold also see the significance of Jesus. He has universal significance. And how do they know about him? Well, the orderliness of the universe for these men. That which determines the destinies of men, the stars, have been broken into by a special star, something that disrupts, you see, their uh, astrological forecast and forces them to go looking now for this one. God, if nothing else, was announcing in the stars that a momentous event has taken place, one that changes the orderliness of the universe and the destinies of men. And these were men of great wealth and learning, we would expect as well, judging from their gifts and from their titles. And so I think what Matthew is saying is that in addition to the shepherds who were poor and uneducated, Jesus is now adored and worshipped by men outside the Jewish fold who are wealthy and quite learned. And so the universal significance of Christmas is being taught by Matthew. All men and in all times need what this baby is going to offer. What is it that men need? You stop and think about it. What are the hopes and the fears of somebody like um, Jerry Brown or Dolly Parton or Genghis Khan or this couple waiting in the wilderness for the cosmic visitors? What do people need? I don't have time to rehearse everything what people need this morning, but I thought it might be well just to go over a few of the questions that are given in Colin Brown's book on the Christian faith. Basic human questions, he calls them. And I think there's about eight here, but let me just rehearse for you what he says. The basic human questions are, who or what am I? Who or what am I? Aldous Huxley, the English writer, 
the one who wrote Brave New World and then later in 1958, Brave New World Revisited, says, how can we control the vast impersonal forces that now menace our hard-won freedoms? What do we do about political oppression? How do we keep this brave new world from coming about? How do we protect our freedom? Colin Wilson, who is a writer, an English writer, um, who wrote the book The Outsider, which was uh, translated into a number of languages, writes, their problem is the unreality of their lives. They become acutely conscious of it when it begins to pain them, but they are not sure of the source of the pain. The ordinary world loses its values as it does for a man who has been ill for a very long time. Life takes on the quality of a nightmare or a cinema sheet when the screen goes blank. These men who had been projecting their hopes and desires into what was passing on the screen suddenly realize that they are in a cinema. They ask, who are we? What are we doing here? With the delusion of the screen identity gone, the causality of its events suddenly broken, they are confronted with a terrifying dream. In Sartre's phrase, they are condemned to be free. Completely new bearings are demanded. A new analysis of this real world of the cinema has to be undertaken. In the shadow world on the screen, every problem had an answer. This may not be true of the world in the cinema. The fact that the screen world is proved to be a delusion arouses the disturbing possibility that the cinema world may be unreal too. When we dream that we dream, we are beginning to wake up, Novalis said. Zhuang Zhu had once said that he had dreamed he was a butterfly and now wasn't sure it was a man who dreamed he was a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming he was a man. Many illustrations can be given. These two, what is man? Is he meant to be free? Is he meant to be a member of a brave new world? If he's free, he seems to lose his significance. But if he finds his significance only in the context round about him, he seems to lose his freedom and therefore his dignity. Another question, what is the meaning of life? Not only who am I or what am I, what is the meaning of life? What am I here for? Where, where do we find values? How do we make choices, moral choices in particular? Camus writes in his book, The Rebel, the controversial aspect of the contemporary history compels us to say that rebellion is one of man's essential dimensions. It is our historical reality. Unless we ignore reality, we must find our values in it. Is it possible to find a rule of conduct outside the realm of religion and absolute values? That is the question raised by revolt. Isn't that amazing? Camus no theologian, but he's put his finger right on it. Once you revolt against God, can you find absolute values? Once you reject a theistic worldview, is there a way to make moral choices? Another basic question, question of truth. Is it possible to know the truth about ourselves in the universe? Bertrand Russell, in the opening of his book on epistemology, says, Is there any knowledge in the world which is so certain that no reasonable man can doubt it? This question, which at first sight might not seem difficult, is really one of the most difficult that can be asked. When we have realized the obstacles in the way of a straightforward and confident answer, we shall be well launched on the study of philosophy. For philosophy is merely the attempt to answer such ultimate questions. How about the question of human love? Is it possible that love is a reality or is it only a biochemical response? Suffering. Why is there suffering? How can we live with suffering? 
Eugene Ionesco, the French playwright uh, in the genre of the theater of the absurd, describes the profound impression made on him by the violence he witnessed early in his life. He writes, shortly after my arrival in my second homeland, I saw a man still young, big and strong, attack an old man with his fist and kick him with his boots. I have no other images of the world except those of evanescence and brutality, vanity and rage, nothingness or hideous, useless hatred. Everything I have since experienced has merely confirmed what I had seen and understood in my childhood. Vain and sordid fury cries suddenly, stifled by silence, shadows engulfed forever in the night. I know that's a rather poetic way of putting it, but what he says is, you just watch somebody beat up on somebody else and just remember that image. Why is there such suffering? Why is there injustice in the world? What do we do about that? Or death. How, do I, how am I to face death? Is there life after death? American novelist Raymond Chandler chillingly presented the finality of death as seen by the non-Christian in that thriller, The Big Sleep, when he wrote, What did it matter where you lay when you were dead? In a dirty sump or in a marble tower on top of a high hill? You were dead. You were sleeping the big sleep. You were not bothered by things like that. Oil and water were the same as wind and air to you. You just slept the big sleep, not caring about the nastiness of how you died or where you fell. This is one of those basic human problems crying out, what do I make of death? My own death. How about the future of man? Is there hope for the human race? Can civilization find peace or the supernatural? Is there anything more than the human world? Well, we could go on and on. Time doesn't allow us. These are basic human questions. But you know, as I reflect more and more upon the basic human questions, the more I am convinced that the Incarnation is the answer to them all. The Incarnation is the grandest of the miracles of the Bible. In fact, I agree with Lewis when he says that none of the other miracles of the Bible make sense apart from the Incarnation. That in every other miracle, we find either an anticipation of the Incarnation, an exemplification of the Incarnation, or the results of the Incarnation. Just think of, perhaps, if you were to say, name the, the grandest miracle of the Bible, I suppose the next candidate might be the resurrection of Christ. But you see, apart from the incarnation, the resurrection of Christ might be nothing more but the resurrection of a Lazarus. Don't you see? Even the resurrection takes its meaning ultimately from the incarnation. And that grandest miracle of the Bible turns out to be grand because it's the answer to every human hope and every human fear. What about death? Christ the Savior has been born so that we might be released from the power of death. What about the significance of individual human life? Christ is the Savior of men as individuals as well. He makes sense of the individual's life and gives meaning and direction to it. How about peace among men? He's born to be the Prince of Peace. How about the problems I have internally and the need I have for a counselor? He's born as a wonderful counselor the only one who understands the way I've been made and how I can solve my problems. On and on things can go. You say, well, now wait a minute. There are certainly some desires that Christ isn't satisfied. What about sensual desires? Desires, say, that have to do with the material world or the natural processes. And you see, the incarnation is the grandest demonstration that God affirms the physical world. God doesn't save us in some fairyland away from the world in which our bodies live and move and breathe. God comes right into this world and takes on human flesh 
to sympathize with our needs, and to redeem the fallen world, not to, uh, to turn it away. I mean, the pagan religions of this world either simply repeat the natural truths we find. They're agricultural types of religions that just teach us what you could learn by watching corn grow, if you will. Or they are religions that take the natural processes of the world and try to make some kind of heavenly significance out of them. They capitulate uh, what we learn about the world into the heavens and make the, make the heaven reflect earth. Or they are earth-denying, which is usually the case. Uh, don't do this, don't do that, turn away from the physical world, be spiritually minded, be ascetic, punish your body, don't be comfortable. Religions of that sort. But in Christianity, we don't have that. We don't have God reflecting the physical world. We have God who makes the physical world come into the physical world to redeem it. And so I think every human hope and every human fear finds its answer there in the birth of Jesus Christ. But I've been saying, what does Matthew make of Christmas? The first thing is its universal significance. The second thing I see Matthew saying is that this grand, universally significant event took place in a very obscure place called Bethlehem. Matthew stresses that when in verse 5 of chapter 2, the uh, Sanhedrin finally figures out where the Magi have gone because they consult their Bibles. Isn't that strange? The experts in the Jewish religion finally consult the Old Testament. They say, oh, here it is. Look at that. In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written through the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, land of Judah, art in no wise least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come forth a governor who shall shepherd my people, Israel. Bethlehem, six miles south of Jerusalem, a day's journey. Jerusalem is certainly the place a king should be born. That's the metropolitan center, but he's born rather in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a city about 2,500 feet high on a gray limestone ridge, saddle-like in its uh, configuration. It has two... Um, um, summits at each end of the city and a fertile countryside next to it from which it probably got its name Bethlehem, bread city, house of bread. Bethlehem is where Jacob buried Rachel and there erected a memorial pillar beside her grave where Jacob buried his favored wife. Later Matthew will speak of Rachel crying for her children because of the slaughter of the innocents at Bethlehem. Bethlehem, where Ruth lived when she married Boaz, and from where she could see across the Jordan Valley her native home of Moab. Why the significance of Ruth? Because she's going to become the grandmother of David. Bethlehem is the home and city of David, so beloved by David that when he was being hunted by Saul up and down the hills, in Judea, as a fugitive, he longed most of all for the water of the well of Bethlehem. You remember that two of his soldiers risked life uh, and everything to go and to bring him back a pitcher of water from the well in Bethlehem. Later, Bethlehem would be fortified by Rehoboam in the Old Testament. But that's all we know of Bethlehem. And that's why in Micah 5, verse 2, he says, Though thou be small among all the princes of Israel. Now, if you're paying attention, if I still have your attention in these closing moments of my exhortation this morning, you're probably saying, no, wait a minute. But that isn't what Matthew says. 
Matthew has changed the quotation, and surely he has. If you turn to Micah 5 in the Old Testament, I want you to notice what he says about Bethlehem and then what Matthew says. Micah says, But thou Bethlehem, Ephrathah, which art little to be among the thousands of Judah, out of thee shall come one unto me who is to be ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. The eternal, the everlasting God is going to be born in Bethlehem. But Bethlehem is said to be out of thee shall one, excuse me, which art little to be among the thousands of Judah. But in Matthew chapter 2, when Matthew quotes this in verse 6, it's, And thou, Bethlehem, land of Judah, art in no wise least among the princes of Judah. Why does he do this? Matthew changes the literal wording, I think, and retains the essential point. Micah had, you are little to be among the thousands. Matthew says, you are by no means least among the princes. That's Matthew's testimony, I think. The point is still the same, because both Micah and Matthew want to say, though you are little, you are by no means insignificant. Matthew says it in his way, Micah says it in his. But the significance you see of Bethlehem is that the hopes and the fears of all the years, whether they be the hopes of a Genghis Khan, of a Dolly Parton, or people waiting in the Minnesota wilderness for cosmic visitors, the hopes and fears of all the years were met in that little town that night. The Anglican bishop who wrote the words to old little town of Bethlehem wrote them three years after he had visited the Holy Land and been in Bethlehem and the children of the school that he was proctoring at that time came to him and said, please write us a new hymn for Christmas. He was really stymied as to how to do it. The thought came to him in one evening, and he wrote the hymn in one evening, as he reflected on sitting in a small church in Bethlehem and thinking of the grand universal significance of what took place in such an insignificant place. The hopes and fears of all the years, he said, are met in thee tonight. That's what Christmas means to me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for rescuing us from all of our fears. We thank you for destroying the works of the devil and his influence in our lives. We thank you for giving us a pattern of life that can overcome the results of the devil's rebellion in this world. We thank you for being the fulfillment of all of our hopes, for love and significance individual meaning in our lives for peace. We thank you that everything that our hearts long for can be satisfied by Jesus Christ the Savior. We trust that in this Christmas season that the significance of Christmas will not be lost on us. We do pray that we will understand, even if it is with some disdain, why so much is made commercially of this time of the year. And we might understand the merriment of people at this time of year, that we might understand that there are deep, psychological, subjective, personal hopes and fears that we all have that need relief. We thank you that because of the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ, we are privileged to see how they are all taken care of. 
Give us mouths willing to sing the praises of this Savior so that others too might learn the significance of that day. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.